I am unashamed. What about you? Welcome back to the Unashamed Podcast. I'm down here in what is normally sunny and warm Gulf Coast, um, Gulf Shores, Alabama, but it's been pretty cold down here. We're about 10 degrees, usually uh, from what you guys are on West Monroe, Jays. And so, like, when you guys were, like, 10 last week, earlier this week, you know, we were, like, 21 here. But but it causes a lot of problems down here because everything's built off the ground. Um, you know, there's a lot of pipe issues. There's a lot of swimming pools down here. They don't react well to freezing temperatures. So it's kind of been a deep freeze for the whole country. Zach, is it bad where you are? What's the story there? If I could adjust my camera and turn it this way, which if you're not watching to the left, I, I, you'd see out my window right now, and it is a, it's like a blizzard, snow pouring out of the sky. Take you a little, course, we're in the, take, we're in the take you a little picture, and we'll we'll have uh, Maddie put it on. I'm gonna do that. I'll take us a picture. You know what's fascinating now is, you know, granted in Louisiana we had more of an ice issue when that came through. Of course, it shut down everything, and and it the really, school was out four days, three or four days. Yeah, which, look, I traveled on the road because I had to get to Los Angeles, and I hunted all day, and I left at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I got home at 7.30 at night because it took me an hour and a half, which is normally 30 minutes, to get from your place to my place. So it it took three times as long. And, uh, you know, we laughed because... People just go crazy. I mean, it, it's really not that it, w- it wasn't that bad. The problem is you have people passing you on an icy road going 65 miles an hour. I'm going like <laughs> 19 miles an hour and they're just sliding down the highway. I mean, why do they do this? I just could not believe it. Either people panic because and you can't find anything in a grocery store, or convenience store. Oh yeah, or they're just out there saying, "Hey, let's get it," you know. And I, I remember thinking of all the spiritual applications of this, because you're like, "Man, how are these people fearless?" Because they think individually, they're indestructible, but they're not. You know, this is not a good thing because they are not concerned about the life and well-being of other people. <laughs> because every 200 yards, guess what you see down here when that happens? A car in the ditch. Yep. yep. So I had to go around a group of cars, and they were trying to pull out a car from a ditch, and I just kind of pulled up there, and was like, what seems to be the problem? Because I was trying to find a way around them. They're like, we can't figure out how to get this truck in four-wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> I said, is there a button? <laughs> they said, well, if there is, we can't find it. <laughs> so I was like, how do you own a vehicle that has four-wheel drive and you don't know how to engage? That answers my response. We say, well, why did they do this? They're just ignorant. they paid for it they paid for that four wheel drive but you know in the redneck mind too though Jace it's also a grand opportunity what you were just describing because there's a lot of guys 
that do know where their four wheel drive is and love their truck. And they just drive around looking to pull people out of situations yeah. like that. Yeah. So the redneck mind, you know, it's an opportunity to, for, to use your skill set. Uh, when stuff like this happens, when you got yeah. icy roads, you got trees down. I mean, you know, the rednecks got his chainsaw, you know, collection. So he he's ready for a moment's like that. Nothing oh, says party like somebody getting stuck in the mud or the ice. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, that's it's like that's Marshall driving. Because look, what I noticed, what was fascinating, is people weren't stopping at the red lights. They're still functional. It's seven o'clock at night. Yeah, and they're just driving right through them because they're like, "Oh, there's there's nobody out here anyway." And I'm like, "Well, I'm out here. I just saw you." Yeah, I mean, the only bobble it I all had, ends up with a gigantic pile of rubble. <laughs> That's right. The only bobble I had is there a, a red light was coming. I was I was only driving 20 miles an hour, but when I tapped those brakes just to slow down because I had to make a 90 degree right turn. You know, my truck just started sliding. And, you know, I didn't stomp the brake. I tapped them because I know that's what you're supposed to do, but there was just no yeah. stopping. And so yeah. instead of trying to turn, because there's a car in the opposite lane of where I was going to turn, because I thought that I may slide into this, this car. Of course, they didn't move or anything. You know, they should have got out of the way. They had plenty of time. Nope, they just sat there. And I just was sliding slower and slower and slower. And then I got, <laughs> if I would have tried to turn, I would have tapped them lightly. Because when I finally stopped, I was now looking at them. Yeah. And they were looking at did, me but like, you, you wow. Them, but you did not hit them. I didn't hit them. I was just in front of them. But if you I'd have tried to turn, are, I would have hit them. You were asking, what are these idiots doing? And the ones looking at you said, I wonder what this idiot is doing. Look at this idiot. <laughs> I basically stopped under the light. I stopped under the light, and now I'm I'm looking at them. And so I did what you do. I waved, and they waved. <laughs> and I used to well, Jackson, but you you were practicing what I call Al's law of the road. Anyone that drives faster than me is an idiot, and anyone that drives slower than me is a moron. Huh. So you know, my my speed is the perfect speed. So that's that's, and everybody thinks that way. That's the problem. Of course, he was sliding. So you you know, Layla, my daughter, who just moved back to Nashville, calls me yesterday, and she had a very similar experience. Uh, it to got UJ's. rough up in there. It got rough. She she's first day on her new job. She had a, almost an exactly identical experience to what Jace just mentioned, except that she actually ended up sliding into a tree and totaling her vehicle. Oh, no. So Layla doesn't have a car right now. So we're, but she did the same thing. You know, she's driving out there, hits the ice. Where we live, they, I mean, we don't get a ton of snow, but we get enough to where they've got, they have an infrastructure in place where if, if it's going to snow, then the, the salt trucks go out. They've got scrapers. They got all the all the stuff you need because we get a couple snows a year. But so you could typically drive unless it's just a you know ice over. You could typically drive around here. Yeah, well, ice. Yeah, snow and ice obviously are different. And people from up north, you know, obviously are much more used to that. And you're right, Zach. They have infrastructure down south. We don't deal with it very much, and so you're not going to spend a ton of your budget if you're the you know department of motor vehicles or whoever does department transportation, you're not going to spend a bunch of your money on stuff you hardly ever need. But it is interesting that we've had now about three winters in a row 
where we seem to have a week of really cold temps and yeah. usually some sort of precip in Louisiana. We've had it for three winters in a row. So that's true. Huh. It was I guess all it worth be it because change. the ducks came with it. I mean, yep. it was like turning on a switch. It was like someone said, engage the migration. <laughs> That's funny because, you know, we had uh, Allie Beth Stuckey's dad. January before, before there was any kind of much kind of, it was very little rain. and There was just no ducks, Phil. There were just no ducks, no no rain and no no temperatures. And the season's almost over. <laughs> this morning, it was just it was just silly, you know, because Phyllis kept asking, "Why are we not? Don't we need a couple more woodies?" I was trying to get her to shoot by herself, and you know, yeah. I said, "Well, we're playing now," because they would come over, and I would say, "Nope, no." Nope. I mean, they were in plenty range, but I was just trying to get them down in there where she couldn't miss. Yeah, because you weren't because you weren't worried about it like you normally are. We're not seeing anymore. Oh, they just kept coming, you know. <laughs> Which have been the whole season. So Allie Best's dad um, is a Ron is a big duck hunter, and so he's been sending me pictures. Dad, he he hunts over in Texas, and um, you know they've been killing them all year. I mean, he'll send me a picture full limits, you know, every day. And then I'm like, well, it's, it's not like that, <laughs> Louisiana. And, and he said, well, maybe this weather will bring y'all some ducks. And, and it did. So I'll have to let him know. It sure it did. Happened, which is good. All right. We well, all ready to get to Luke. Anybody else? Anybody got any more stories they want to tell, Zach? Anything else happen in your well, the family? Best, best thing you can do is stay off the roads if so you won't fall into temptation. Yes. Yeah, you know, that was the point I was trying to make in the last podcast when when people say, well, it's not if temptation is coming, it's when. Because when things are going great or they're going terrible, the evil one and the powers that be can use that with equal enthusiasm. No, that's good. Anything other than the Lord being at the center of your life has a tendency to be a temptation. For you to desire, you know, to put your comfort in power or wealth or whatever, or you're just so far down that you think there's no way back up. And it's just. Well, I think you're right, Jason. That's what makes the moment of what we're reading about here in, in Luke 22 so powerful is that even Jesus, who is God, and yet he's also become one of us in this setting here we're reading about. He has what I would call his most human moment by, you know, praying for strength to deal with what he's about to have to deal with. And the interesting thing is he lands on at the end of the whole thing this night, he lands on not my will, but yours be done. And, you know, that's that becomes his thing. So it's the same thing that the Bible tells us to do on a consistent basis, Jesus himself relied on it. For him to do what he came here to do, and that was to do the will of God. Well, where we fall, fall short sometimes on the grace part of our salvation, that, that Hebrews 10, since that time, Jesus' death, take away our sins, he's made his enemies his footstool. Because you got two things that come out of it. Once you're saved by one sacrifice, his death on a cross, he has made perfect 
forever. But there's a little caveat there. Those who are being made holy. So holiness, you, 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 you confront it being, practicing holiness. You do it because you know he's made you perfect by his death on a cross. You, yeah. you see my point? Other words, yeah, you've got yeah, you got both the justification and yeah. your sanctification in one in one thing. There, it, it right. is. It, you're saved from your sin. You're, you're always going to make some mistakes. Yeah, but, but you're perfect in His eyes because of your faith in who He is and what He's done and what He will do. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Al. I was thinking when you were talking about Jesus ending His prayer there with "Not my will, but Yours be done." That's, I mean, that's almost exact language that he uses when he teaches us to pray in Luke 11, when he said, and by the way, it's indicative of the type of kingdom that Christ had in mind when he came preaching the gospel in the kingdom is that the, the, uh, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. Yep. So he is that the, even in this moment of, of the, the crucifixion, you know, it's, it's, um, this is this is also part of the kingdom of God coming and God's will and reign happening on earth, just like it is in heaven. So, and you're seeing that displayed out in what's about to happen with with the Christ. It's only seen through one group: the ones whose sins have been removed, and they're they by one sacrifice He's made perfect forever. That's done. Those who are being made, it's a ongoing uh, trip, and it shows yeah. it in all the apostles and all of the, the what God had done through them, and still they were struggling somewhat with being made holy. So our good friends at American Home Shield have asked us to question, uh, have you ever had any issues with your appliances or things in your house? Life itself, I've been pawning it off on our house. When you walk in and look around, you'll say, this is a neat, well-treated living room. <laughs> but actually, there's clothes, duck calls. Critters. So what you're saying is that you have no idea whether your appliances work or not. <laughs> you walk inside, and I say, I don't, the one thing I hate is a junky house. And then they look around and say... Uh, really? That would have problems. Well, Phil, no. Jason, you know, though, right? Well, Phil only has two tools, <laughs> a chainsaw and a sledgehammer. That's about it. So help us out. <laughs> so, Jason, you had a what about you had a dishwasher go out on you? I what? did. You I tried to fix it yourself. No, I didn't try. I fixed it <laughs> with some balancing and a couple of cinder blocks. I tried that, but it never worked again. Well, here's what I think you boys need. I think we need American Home Shield. Uh, with, a, with AHS, you can protect uh, what you don't expect, leaky faucet, leaky water heater. It covers all your appliances or your home systems when they break so that that surprise doesn't break the bank. You get to choose a plan that works for you and your budget, and then it's simple. When a covered item in your home breaks, contact American Home Shield, and their trusted and qualified pros will fix or replace it based on the coverage limits in your agreement. See ahs.com slash contracts 
For coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions, right now our listeners can take $50 off. Go to ahs.com slash fill to save that $50. ahs.com slash fill, $50 off any plan. American Home Shield, protect what you don't expect. See ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. There's a picture here of doubt, you know, in all of us, right? And and this idea. That's right. Which is why Jace was talking in the last podcast about temptation and how and trials and how they affect us. When I, I was studying, because uh, I'm preaching Sunday, and I'm preaching out of the book of Psalms. And so I was in, in Psalm 73, which is one of ASAP's Psalms. And he said something, and then it, I was also working on the podcast and it kind of took me down one of Jace's rabbit holes, but I wanted to run, bounce this off of y'all because I found this fascinating. So when Asaph is writing Psalm 73, it's kind of a confessional psalm. I mean, he's he's going to talk about some of his weaknesses, but he starts it and says, surely, and that was the word that got me, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, which is a true statement. But why would he use the word surely to start it with? Why would he just say God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? And so I started looking up that word because it's you, you, it's amazing how many times the word surely is in the Bible. And it's also in the context of what we're talking about, because I told you whenever Jesus said he was somebody in the group was going to betray him, all of them were saying, surely not I, Lord, surely, surely not I, surely not I. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's a statement. It's like if we tell somebody, surely you're not about to tell me something and then whatever we would say after that it's a statement that we think we know what we're talking about but we're really not sure and there's this doubt element and so i started looking up some verses where this is used and listen to this this is when god uses the word here's what is stuff like this this is genesis 6:13 i am surely going to destroy mankind and that was right before the flood so now when God uses the word surely, it's going to happen. Here's what he said in Genesis 18, uh, 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, which is exactly what happened all the way through to Jesus Christ. But two chapters later, here's the same Abraham who God had just said this about, and when he was afraid that he, he was going to be killed because his wife was beautiful. Sarah was beautiful. And this king was going to take her. Abraham says to himself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they're going to kill me because of my wife, because he doubted that God would protect him. And then another one, Psalm 51, five, David said after his sin with Bathsheba, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived him. He was so full of guilt and shame that he was like, I had to have been bad even in the womb, which is not true. But it shows you the doubt that comes about. And so I just thought about that's one word in a human context that's full of doubt, but in a godly context is full of surety, which is what the word really means. And it just reminded me so much of this night. Jesus understood how hard it was going to be for his followers to deal with not only this night and the next three days, but then, of course, their ministry. And he's trying to prepare them for that moment. Uh, even in their yeah. doubt, which is pretty powerful. The struggle, the struggle is always there. It's real. That's exactly it is. Right. Even when you know you not put your faith in Jesus, you know your sins have been removed. To stay that way and to be holy 
it's an ongoing process. It is. We have to trust. What yep. were you going to say, Zab? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that's how we read the Psalms, too. Like, we, you read those. I, I think we've said this before. I mean, I, I can't read the 23rd Psalm and and say, man, this is true of me 100%. I mean, it's not. I mean, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm, uh, well, no, I want a lot. And I and yeah, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads, beside, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes I don't feel that. I don't feel that a lot in my life. Even, so, But I read this and I sing this psalm because I want it to be true of, of my life. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then here's that word that you mentioned. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want that to be true. So if I'm singing surely goodness, and, and there's, I think there's a Shane and Shane song on this actual psalm, but you know, when I'm singing that, surely I'm saying, I, I, what I'm, I'm saying is I want this to be true in my life. I want this to me to embody this truth about who God is and, and that his goodness and mercy will follow me. So, but it is kind of rooted in how we say it. There's kind of an inherent doubt in us, which is part of being human, you know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we have that in us. That's the significance of the heart, Zach. I mean, God wants our heart. And he says, I can give you the surety you need, but only it's, it's only going to be found in me. Because if it ever depends on you, you're always going to fall back on your doubt. And, and so I, I think on no other night in this, book of Luke, will you see that more evident than this night, the night before yeah. Jesus' death? Yeah, a good way to look at it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's exactly. Where the, there's where the, 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 the rough, rough part is. It's always, always rough around the edges. That's right. Well, even in the James 1 passage we did last podcast, talking about temptation and how it morphs into, you know, our desires being ground zero for where everything happens. What you desire the most is what's going to happen in your life. You know, he says there, you must persevere when you face many trials and when you lack wisdom, you should ask God. And he's like, when you ask in verse six, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave in the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That's why I like the title of your book, Phil, because you're turning around doubt. You're like, I could be wrong, but I doubt it because it's all about Jesus being right. enough or Jesus <laughs> being right. better. Yeah. But we That's give right. the disciples a hard time saying, you know, he said over and over and over that he was going to die, be buried and raised. And then when it came down to it, we're like, why were they waffling? But you even see Jesus in his humanity when it came right to his death. Correct. He's really distraught. And I love that you brought that up about that prayer, because that becomes our prayer. Because yeah. we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, you could get a diagnosis you may win the lottery. It could be good or bad, but there's going to come a question to what you desire most and what you're going to put your trust in, and you're going to have to say that same prayer. I'm going to have to trust you 
in the good times and the bad because those are foundations for temptation for me to get my eyes off Jesus. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden this process starts. Desires give birth to sin, sin gives birth to death, and you've missed it. And let's face it, Jase, every relationship no matter what it is, a husband, a wife, a, a parent, and a child, a, two brothers, two sisters, every relationship that fell apart usually started with some sort of doubt over motives, over something somebody said, and then continued to grow to that text you talked about in James 1 to a point where it can kill a relationship. And so if you don't, I mean, we just see that in a practical ways. But if that starts out that you don't have that sort of relationship with God, and you're not based on an absolute truth, then your whole life is going to be shifting. That's why it's so hard for people to maintain relationships without God, because you don't have that understanding of service and sacrifice that we talked about. Um, let's take another break. You know, that's why I think he said that in verses 26 through 29, he really redefined, you know, greatness and by by redefining it and then tying it in with the kingdom, you know, you redefine it saying, are you going to, do you want to be the one at the table or you, do you want to be the one who's serving? Because I'm, I came to serve, which he's redefining greatness right there. You would never think that you're in a fine restaurant that the greater person is the one bringing you the food. That's right. You just don't think that way. But right. then he does it because it then redefines your purpose. And so that's why he said, you know, I, and I confer you a kingdom. And just as the father conferred one on me, that you may sit at my table in my kingdom. So, so it kind of defines your purpose. You know, he would leave. After he destroyed, I, I love Phil bringing up that point about putting all the enemies under his feet because his death on the cross wasn't just for our sins. It actually disabled the evil forces and powers and the control that they have over our life. I mean, you know, you, when you read the, uh, where's that, Philippians 2, I mean, he disarmed that power and even the ultimate power of death being disarmed through his resurrection. So he did all the work, but go actually going through it, you see that his humanity really come to the forefront here, which I think is special because, you know, since he was tempted in every way, which we didn't bring that up as far as temptation, he is able to help those, you know, that's Hebrews 4. He is able to sympathize and help us. Yeah, you mentioned that there was a, kind of a redefinition in 24 through 29 of Luke 22 of what greatness is. I think when you get to the end part of that text, when he talks about, he says, you uh, you are those who have stayed with me in, in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, and what, what for what reason? That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, I mean, there's a lot in there, but I think two things that kind of stand out to me is, one, 
that, I mean, he just got through talking about the, I mean, just did the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and he was clearly talking about what was about to happen to him and the kind of, and what this meal represents the suffering servant, you know, that the, the, that's prophesied about in Isaiah through the servant songs. And it's, it's the idea that the, that the savior, the Christ will suffer, which has got to be a super parad- a huge paradox to what they thought. And we know that because as we mentioned many times on this podcast, Peter cut off a man's ear in anticipation of the arrival of the kingdom that he thought was going to be a political kingdom. Um, or, or maybe that's the wrong word. There was going to be a an earthly uh, monarchy type kingdom, political type kingdom. Not understanding what God was doing, and so that had to be shocking. But so the the invitation into dinner at his table could involve suffering, and and would involve suffering for for these people. But that 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 would be actually the fulfillment of what greatness is, and it's actually in laying down your life for people that you actually find. Uh, the 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 beautifulness and the and the wonder and the goodness of God and then two um, there's a direct link here between the kingdom and uh, consumption you know like he's saying the reason why I want you in the kingdom is that you may consume and eat at my table and I, I think that this would not make a lot of sense if we didn't read a passage like John six that Jesus defines the type of consumption that he's offering us is not consuming the world for the sake of the world. It's actually consuming Christ. He says, I am the bread of life that came from heaven. Consume me, you know, drink my blood, eat my flesh. You know, th- this is, this is the life that I gave to the world. The woman at the well drink, consume the water that I have to give you. And that will be uh, in you become in you a spring welling up to eternal life. And so I think there is this so such a beautiful correlation here of uh, of consumption in God's way of consuming God and being able to participate in the kingdom and that's linked together and the, in that you find true happiness and true peace and true human flourishing. Well, just in a practical way, Zach. I mean, we all know people who excel at serving because the whole idea here is you will be great by your service. I can't. I, I know a lot of people who are great servants, and the one thing they share in common is not a single one of them are arrogant in any way. I mean, people who serve tend to yeah. not be arrogant people because they're givers, and 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 that becomes this point of the kingdom. Last night we were having call, a they, dinner. At, they, they, they have holy fear. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you see that in them, right? And, and, yep. it, and it permeates. Last night we were having dinner here at one of our little local places we like to go. And it was packed. A lot of people here, a lot of snowbirds are down here now. And this gal that waited on us, because we eat here a lot, you know, she's great. She loves her job. She's a good waitress. You know, she's a servant. And so, you know, last night, Pete, the guy who was with us, he, he ordered wings. And she said, what, well, do you want those fried or char-grilled? And he said, fried. And she said, do you want those fried or char-grilled? And she, he said, uh, fried. And she said, fried or char-grilled? And finally, after three times, he said, should I get them char-grilled? And she said, oh, they're much better. And yeah. I just thought, and, and he got them, and they were delicious. And so what I was saying is she knew they were better. And it was still his choice, but because she's a servant, she guided him to the right way. And afterwards, she couldn't quit talking about it. And I just thought that's what a servant's attitude needs to be. It makes everybody experiences of living better 
And when you look at that from a kingdom standpoint, we take away arrogance and pride and all the things that's in us naturally to be like. When we're servants and we sacrifice ourselves, we take that out of the equation. And that makes us look more like Jesus, which is, I think, his whole point. Exactly. I remember my daughter, you know, we we talk a lot about teenagers on here because I guess me and Zach are full force into that. Well, I guess I just graduated because my daughter turned 20. But uh, I remember when she made the transition in her life and she just wanted to be involved in every spiritual thing possible. It's like once she made the transition and so she's calling out at camp and because they were fixing to have camp session and they're like, well, the only thing, you know, we have left is working in the kitchen, you know, washing dishes. And she's like, perfect. I was like, perfect. <laughs> I thought she'd say, no, wait a minute here. You know, and, uh, but it just shows you that once you get Jesus in your eye and you want to yep. make that transition, it just doesn't matter. You want to be a part of what's going on in, you know, in his kingdom. Yep. And, uh, and I would Hebrew ask you, writer calls it the holy fear. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that Hebrews four, but I wanted to read it because it's it's really powerful because you see Jesus in this moment. I mean, because a lot of people say, I don't understand why he's while it's like he's changing course. Why is he saying, is there any other way? I mean, I thought he was God. What what he became a human and, and the Hebrew writer characterizes why. In a very powerful way, when in verse 15 of chapter 4, when he says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's the most fascinating thing, that he came down here, did not one thing wrong, and wound up on a Roman cross after being insulted, persecuted, when you talk about temptation, I think the greatest temptation he overcame was keeping his mouth shut. I, I mean, I would I would be unable to say, I'll tell you what, you go ahead and kill me, but you're going to regret this. I mean, I, I just know how I am, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that. You think about it, Jesus could have said, surely you don't think you're going to kill me. And but he could have meant it because he could have called in, you know, a whole legion of angels to do something about it. But you're right. He didn't. He didn't do what he could have done. And he did that for us, which shows you that he was 100 percent human as well as 100 oh, exactly. percent. I think the chosen does a good job of that. But the practical part is that next verse in verse 16 so then it says let us then approach the throne of grace because he was without sin and he trusted the father and he prayed and he he stuck to the plan we can approach the throne of grace with confidence which would be the opposite of doubting every time something doesn't go our way that's right and I think that's what this is all about, because people use it as an excuse not to follow God, because they're like, well, things are not going my way. I mean, if God cared for me, why is this going on in my life? And it, that's where the trust comes in and, and the true meaning of relationship comes in. And you, you can go back to Job. I mean, you remember, you think about all the 
the evil temptations that we usually talk about. But Job, everything was going great. And there's a conversation in the supernatural world about the only reason he's following you is because you're blessing him. So God's like, well, have at it. And, you know, you have one of the longest books in the Bible over the evil one just attacking him from every conceivable angle. You remember, he takes away all his stuff. He, I mean, they just come from the four winds. Everything that he has is being attacked. So then the evil one, known as the accuser, then says, well, the only reason he's still following you is because you're not allowing me to get him. You let me curse him and he'll he'll curse you. He does that. He winds up on an ash heap scraping his source. Then all his friends come. Another temptation. They're like, you're worthless. You're terrible. Look at what all, you know, that is happening to you. did something you. bad. You just think you put anybody else in our world in that situation and you see it every day. What do they do? They start doubting and they don't trust the Lord. And that's why we have these books. That's why we have this prayer that Jesus says is because either you're going to trust him or you're not. But he has a purpose for us. And if the world wasn't as bad as it is, we would have no purpose. Yep. And that's what this is all about. And even his wife does, even his wife says, why don't you just curse God and get this over with? You know, why, why are you holding on to something that obviously is not true? So you're right. Every one of his, his relationships that should have been supportive of him were another point of temptation that, you know, you're a terrible person. I w- I'm glad you brought that up, Jace, because I wanted to mention in verse 31 of Luke 22, because Jesus says a, it's an odd phrase there, and it, I was curious about it, and I think what you just brought up is the answer. When he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, which is kind of an odd way of putting that. You know, he's he's telling him you're about to go through something difficult, but he said he's asked to do it. And my my question really to y'all is, do you think it was the same type scenario as what some conversation in the supernatural realm like was had about Job was also had about Peter? Or is he just making a phrase here? I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of an odd way of putting that. What well, do you think? I, I, I think it gives me inspiration. I mean, when things are not going my way, I assume that and I have many times. I thought, well, there must be some conversation going up there about old Jace is going to cave okay. <laughs> if this doesn't work out. And I think it's a good way to look at it that the evil one and his powers, they have to ask permission. They are, they're not able to do something now without getting permission and God trusts us. I mean, he, you know, that's basically what he did with Job. He knew, he knew his heart. He was like, it's going to be rough. And from everybody on looking, they were like, God doesn't love you. He doesn't love you anymore. And I mean, Job went right up to the edge. He was mad. He was disappointed. He, I mean, you couldn't have anything worse happened to the man. But in all that, I love that passage in Job. It says he didn't sin and he didn't turn his back on God. Stayed the course. No, I agree, Jace. And and I think the other two statements Jesus makes backs up what you were saying, because he said to Simon, but I have prayed for you, Simon, 
that your faith may not fail. So it's still up to Simon to do the, to ultimately do the right thing or not. But then Jesus, knowing that he was going to have an epic fail, says this, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, which I think is the ultimate approaching the you know throne with confidence that Jesus, you mentioned earlier, because he's telling Peter, I'm praying for you, you know, and look, hit or hit or miss. When you come back and do the right thing, be sure and strengthen your brother. So he gives them the whole package in one sentence that he knows exactly what's going to happen to Peter's life. And that gives me. I've used this passage with every one of my teenagers at some point. Yeah. It's like, I'm telling you, I'm praying to God for you. And when you come back, you know, we'll be just stay alive. We'll be here. Yeah. That's the ultimate prodigal son speech. Let's, uh, Let's take our last break. No, I, I think uh, that's why I wanted to see what y'all thought about that. Zach, is that what, is that what you think too? That he meant by the what he said to Peter? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 I think I'm on the same page as you guys. I mean, a lot of this in here is, you know, we're we're, we're going through. I, I think about this a lot. How much of the Bible we go through, <laughs> and I'm like, so we're gonna we'll make it. We'll, we'll give us a little grace if we got it wrong. I'll say that. <laughs> That's right. Well, we are going to. I mean, you know, there's no way you have this many ideas that go for that and not miss it a little bit. Uh, also, of course, I thought about when he said, "All these things are about to be fulfilled." He said that at the um, we, that which is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And I tell you that it must be fulfilled in me is another one of those we've been talking about how that what's about to happen is the culmination of everything that's been written and prophesied about up to now. Yeah. And it's all going to happen in Christ. So he, he makes that statement again. Well, he uh, specifically brings up the one from Isaiah 53, too, when it says he it is written and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell yeah. you, that this must be fulfilled in me. And so when you read Isaiah 40 through about 53, I mean, you basically are seeing the picture of what was going to happen to Jesus. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I always say, like, when you read Isaiah, you know, or really any of the Old Testament prophets, I just had this conversation yesterday with someone. It there, There's it, there's the kind of an immediate context of, of like, what the prophecy is that that's going to come true, like, in a, in a more immediate sense. And so— and Isaiah, it, a lot of what he was predicting was was geared towards the Babylonians coming in and and destroying the temple, and that was like what five eighty six, and it was you know, Cyrus coming in and rebuilding the temple and all these things. But it, it it's like that's that's like the low level um, pr- prophetic fulfillment. Then there's the bigger picture of the prophetic fulfillment, which is in Christ. Um, both in the temple, both in you know him re- him being the Cyrus, it's it's it, there's a bigger picture at play with all of these prophets that if you're reading it in its time period, um, it may have one application, but then when you get to the the New Testament and the New Testament is going back to those Old Testament prophets and showing how all of it was fulfilled in Christ, it it, it it's, it's really mind blowing to think about the one person fulfilled this. I did it all. I mean, it's great. It's not only is it great evidence for God, it's, it also, for me, it draws the entire narrative of scripture into one huge 
arc or one huge narrative um, that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. No, that's good. And, you know, it makes me think, too, a couple of the statements that are in here. One is uh, you read about this and it's either Matthew or Mark. Yeah, Luke doesn't record it, but the others do. Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, which, of course, he was about to die. But uh, he emphasized this idea about sorrow. And then also in, in, in our text, in verse 45, he goes back to his disciples and they're asleep. And then Luke says, because they were exhausted from sorrow. And so that word is used in both of these settings, both with Jesus and his disciples. And it that helped me a lot because that's the way I feel about this situation. I'm so grateful Jesus died for my sins. I'm so grateful he was willing to do what he did. But I got to be honest. I mean, it makes me very sad for him, even after 2,000 years, that he had to go through that because I'm such a wreck. I mean, it, it's a sorrowful uh, celebratory. It's a twist of both, right? I mean, like we celebrate the fact of what Jesus did for us, but at the same time, it, it makes you sad that sin is so bad that it put him in that position to have to do that for us. So I think it's that bittersweet idea when we think about this context we're, we're studying now in Luke. It's, it's why people say, well, I can't go watch The Passion because it's just, it's too, I, I, it makes me too sad. And I'm like, well, I get that. But it really happened, and you're really bad enough that you needed that to happen. Well, and I think we minimize, you know, I think in a curious verse here is after he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then it says an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And you remember angels attended him after the temptation that he had with the evil one. Yep. Well, you tie that in with Hebrews one fourteen that says, "Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit uh, salvation?" Or what does it say? Uh, sent to inherit. Let me see what that says. Hebrews one fourteen. I can make that right. But I was wondering what y'all thought about that. Yeah, who will inherit salvation? I mean, I. I'm saying I think a lot of times you're comforted in ways that you just don't realize because we're so earthly minded. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious to see, uh, you know, the Irwin brothers do a lot of spiritual movies and they have one coming out this year called Ordinary Angels. Mm. And they have a couple of Hollywood uh, big-time actors, Hillary Swank and the guy that's on that Reacher show. Yeah. and uh, But I noticed it was rated PG. But, you know, I was just going to see what y'all's take on this was because he became a man. He's the son of God. But there's also this idea of angels attending him and comforting him. And not only that, not only in those moments, Jace, but you think about it, angels were there when he was born. Remember, they announced it and gave instructions to the shepherds and everybody there. Yeah, They, they were there in the, his moment of temptation to strengthen him. They were there in this moment when he's going to die. And then they were also there at the resurrection to both roll that stone away, but also to give instruction. And then they're there when he goes back. To well, yeah. tell you know where he's coming back the same way, it and so you, he he had help, but so do we. 
Well, that's so what I we. was getting at. If you go back to the passage in John one fifty one when he had that conversation with Nathaniel about, you know, he was looking at thinking about Jacob's ladder. And he's like, You'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yeah. I mean, I just think we never talk about that much, but you know, when you get to Hebrews twelve on what encompasses the kingdom and who's all there when he says in 22, you've come to the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And then he you know, eventually gets to the kingdom in verse in. A couple of verses later in verse 29, 28 and 29, when it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and all. I was just saying, I think we we never think about that in the spiritual warfare realm, that we there's a lot more going for us than we acknowledge. Think about Elisha in First King or Second Kings 6. And he's at that moment where he's, I love the, it's called the oh no moment. Uh, when the, this is verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Like, I mean, we we may not see it, but that doesn't mean that, that we don't have protection. And I, I take a lot of comfort in that because I think a lot of times, and we, I've, I've dealt with this sometimes with folks in our church, that are they're hypersensitive to the spiritual realm, but... But, but but sadly, they're hyper spiritual to the to are hypersensitive to the negative spiritual realm that would come at us. And I'm like, you forget that we have protection. Like we, like we do belong to to Christ. We do have the Holy Spirit in us, and we are surrounded by by spiritual forces that are fighting and warring for our soul. And um, and we do have protection, and we don't have to live in we live we need to live in reverent fear, but we don't have to live in paralyzing fear. And those are very two different types yeah. of fear. I think just acknowledging that would make disciples of Jesus way more bold. I think so. You know, I mean, look, it it never crossed my mind that when I was in L.A. with hundreds, I guess there was a few thousand of us, of Jesus followers, we were outnumbered. But it wasn't just the crowd there. I thought, oh, yeah, there's unseen angels. There's a gathering here because we're we're. Folks is known Jesus, and we're celebrating Jesus, and we want to get him to the world. No, that's good, Jay. We're out of time, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, angels and much more in overtime. If you want to follow us over, blazetv.com slash unashamed is where you go to subscribe for our overtime. See you there. Thanks for listening to the Unashamed Podcast. Help us out by rating us on iTunes. And don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube And be sure to click that little bell to get notified about new episodes. And for even more content that you won't get anywhere else, subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash unashamed.